This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Like many of you, I've been feeling the heaviness of recent events in the U.S. and around the world. This heaviness can feel overwhelming and we don't know where to start or how to help. But there are things that we can do. So in today's episode, I'm speaking with one of my colleagues who is taking action. Dr. Pranav Shetty is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of disaster services for our Department of Emergency Medicine here at UC Davis. He recently returned from a trip to Eastern Europe to support medical and humanitarian aid efforts in Ukraine. I asked him to tell me more about it. So I went with an organization called Project Hope. They are an international non-governmental organization that works in humanitarian aid, so primarily after natural disasters and conflict situations as well as work in um, global health generally, most commonly like health system strengthening and development work as well. I spent about um, three weeks in Eastern Europe. I spent two weeks in Poland in a border town called Zhezhov, which is where the UN coordination was based for activities inside Ukraine. And then I spent one week in Ukraine in an area in Western Ukraine called Lviv, which is where a number of the international organizations were working in terms of delivering aid to Ukraine during this crisis, as well as an area where a lot of displaced populations from the eastern side of Ukraine had come given the relative safety of that area. The war, I guess, technically started on February 24th, I believe, and I arrived there in the middle of March, and then I returned back to the U.S. in early April. In terms of what we were doing, you know, there were a number of organizations that are working in this space, providing kind of a variety of services. So what we were focusing on was medical supplies and medical logistics in terms of getting supplies to areas which needed it in primarily eastern Ukraine or, or areas of the country that were undergoing more active conflict, because that was the need that was expressed. Um, Ukraine predominantly had a very kind of Soviet-esque uh, top-down health supply chain where supplies would come into the country, be collated at the central Ministry of Health level, and then distributed afterwards to regional and smaller level hospitals. And then whenever the conflict started, a lot of these supply chains got cut. And so a lot of end-level hospitals, hospitals that were actually treating patients, didn't have the medications, consumables, or equipment that they needed to provide um, optimal care. Secondly. Ukraine pre-conflict made about 70% of their pharmaceuticals that they needed in country through their own national system and the pharmaceutical manufacturers there. But a lot of the raw materials actually came from Russia and Belarus and countries like this. And so they weren't able to obtain those materials. So their production shut down as well. So the needs in terms of supplies were across the board. I mean, from kind of basic pharmaceuticals that we think about at the primary healthcare level for antibiotics, antihypertensives, insulin, things like this, up to kind of more advanced uh, level of care, such as biologics, care for patients with dialysis, care for patients with various oncologic conditions and things of that nature. So it was a much greater spread of items that were needed compared to what, you know, really the external aid agencies can provide. Who is providing the actual medical care? Is it mainly Ukrainian physicians? In short, yes. The Ukrainian health system, in terms of staffing, 
is actually very well staffed even at this point. The areas in which their um, populations have displaced to, they're also displaced clinical staff in those areas, and they have augmented the health system that exists in those areas. Some organizations did send groups as would be more commonplace after a natural disaster in Haiti, for example, where you would send a medical team of professionals and supplies where you could go and you could provide care. However, it didn't seem that that was needed. A lot of those teams ended up leaving and even the ones that have stayed really haven't seen the number of patients that they thought they would given the robustness of the Ukrainian health system in those areas. I should say that, you know, it's very hard to generalize for all of Ukraine because there's a significant difference in the areas that are accessible and are not in active conflict versus an area like Mariupol, which is besieged, or Kharkiv, which is being bombed, especially now that the conflict has shifted away from the capital, Kiev, and kind of along the eastern side of the country to areas that were actually been under low-level conflict for the last eight years, especially Donetsk and Luhansk, and those areas which were initially annexed, in quote-unquote, by Russian separatists in 2014, I believe it was. And so I think there's a lot of disparity, you know, in those two general settings. And the hard part, I guess, is that the areas with the most need also have the lowest level of access, you know, both for humanitarian aid, but even regular supplies in terms of food, in terms of basic non-food items, in terms of infrastructure like transport, safe water, electricity, you know, things of that nature. There's really a significant gap, you know, in provision of those basic services. And so one of the things I think also as a humanitarian health community we're thinking about is what's going to be the after effects of that as vaccination rates drop, as safe water doesn't become accessible, sanitation infrastructure get destroyed about communicable disease outbreaks and other diseases of concern that that occur whenever you have a breakdown in infrastructure, as well as potentially um, a crowded situation as well. Was there anything that surprised you about this trip? Anything you weren't expecting? Yeah, absolutely. I think Historically, when we've responded as a humanitarian community to crises, it has tended to be in kind of low and middle income countries where the health infrastructure was more austere, I guess, than Ukraine. The needs in Ukraine are at a higher level than, than what we're generally used to in terms of like preparedness, in terms of expectations, in terms of the specific supplies that are needed. You know, as I mentioned, we were asked to provide medications like oncologic medications and rheumatologic medications, which makes sense given the spectrum of disease that they have, but is not really within the toolbox of humanitarian aid agencies in terms of their planning and preparedness and stockpiling and things like this. So when we're thinking about the medical supply logistics, it just adds a very significant lead time to be able to provide these type of items within a short period of time. Um, and so I think the heuristics, I guess, that we normally use when we see a situation and we want to be able to provide aid there is really different for a setting like Ukraine than it would be for other conflict situations such as Yemen or Iraq. The resources that are needed to match the morbidity is very different in this setting. What was the environment like for you and those you were working with? In Poland, I was in, it was a smaller town. It was called um, Zhezhov. And the reason that we were there was that that's actually where the UN coordination for activities inside Ukraine were based. 
The challenge was the deconfliction of supplies going into Ukraine between humanitarian aid and military supplies, because they're all kind of going through the same border crossings. We know that there were bombings and cruise missile strikes in areas of infrastructure in Western Ukraine as well. And so there was cognizance of this in terms of the risk of sending supplies and staff across the border. It's hard to differentiate between military supplies, which is a legitimate military target versus humanitarian aid, which is not. And so I think there was a lot of work done as much as possible in terms of trying to separate these forms of aid, but that became um, really challenging to do. Also, in terms of the environment in, in Jezhov, there was a large U.S. military presence there as well. The 81st Airborne, which provided the information on what's called civilian military coordination with regards to information about the conflict, updates on what all the parties are doing, updates on what governments are doing to support, which is actually new, in at least in my experience, in, in terms of this level of coordination, because it is an international conflict, which has entirely different ways of working in terms of like how international support would work. In Ukraine, as I mentioned, I was in Lviv, which, you know, honestly, if it wasn't for the air sirens and the checkpoints, you wouldn't know that there was a, a war going on, really, because people are going about their business. There's a lot more people there than there used to be. And that was noted to us. But the shops are open. You know, the restaurants are open. There's availability of supplies and things like this. People had gotten very used to going down into their basements and shelters whenever there were air sirens. So one of the weekends we were there, there were airstrikes in Lviv, in the town, where they hit like a fuel depot. And so we were staying at a university. And so we, as everybody did with the air sirens, you went into the basement and there were a bunch of college students there just studying for their exams, you know, kind of socializing, doing their thing. It, it had become almost normal, which is really difficult to think, how could you imagine somebody is going to study for their final in the middle of this conflict? But that's the reality of the situation. By the time we were there, they had been going through this for almost a month at that point in time. And so they were still doing what they needed to do in terms of their livelihoods and education and things like that, which I think was interesting to think about. It's very easy to visit an area for a week or so and feel that you know what's going on there, but you really don't in any respect. And you can't imagine what it could be like to live under that pressure over an extended period of time, which is obviously physically and emotionally challenging. Did you feel the project was successful? And what are the next steps? It's a work in progress, I think, you know, it was a bit challenging. So as I mentioned, we we're focusing on medical supplies and supply chain, which has a number of regulatory components around it, a um, number of specifications that need to be in place if you're going to transport goods that require like cold chain or something like that. There are a number of steps to this, you know, procurement on the international level, transport generally across Europe, warehousing in Western Ukraine in Lviv, which is what um, Project Hope is doing, and then distribution to areas of need. Part of what I helped with was helping identify an appropriate warehouse, um, helping work with our logistics colleagues in terms of determining what were the appropriate supplies to buy, given the resources that we had available, given the lead times that exist for specific items, and given the requests that are coming from various different facilities there. 
And then as well, helping to establish transportation networks from that point, because there aren't a lot of commercial vendors like UPS or whatever, you know, that's going to go from that warehouse to especially areas that are potentially at least conflict adjacent or in active conflict. And so working with kind of local partners to be able to identify those networks is really important. So this was an ongoing venture. And so I'm still providing some support from the back end, but it's really those logisticians and um, healthcare staff that Project Hope has inside Ukraine that are doing a lot of the day-to-day. How did this whole experience affect you? It was interesting. I, I'll go back to something I mentioned before, which was the the importance of the cultural and pre-existing health context when you're responding to a crisis. So I worked for a number of years in humanitarian aid previously, but it was predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, and in areas of, of conflict, as I mentioned, in Syria and Iraq and Northeast Nigeria. It is interesting, I think, when you compare to those type of crises, one is the, I guess, the resilience that people have with regards to how they would respond in this period. So seeing people who voluntarily will stay in specific areas, healthcare staff in which their facilities had been bombed and they're just taping up their windows and closing those wards and continuing to work there or evacuating patients to the basement and moving back up. It's a situation that I think if a lot of people, they would put themselves in, they would just leave because of the, the threat to their safety, of course, and their family's safety. But that wasn't the case. And it, I think it was the reason, as I mentioned before, that you know we didn't need to bring, or as an international community, didn't need to bring that many health staff to replace those that were there or unable to work for some reason because they had stayed there and they saw this as part of their mission, as part of their role in terms of supporting their nation and supporting their people. It's just kind of interesting to think about, like, and it's interesting to kind of put yourself in that situation about what you would do as well, and it it can be eye-opening. Yeah, it gives you a very different perspective on what it means to be a healthcare provider. Do you have any plans to go back? It is possible. We are starting with a local partner there, kind of a direct clinical care element. It'll probably be a mobile clinic, so I may go back to help start that. What are some things we can do to support these ongoing efforts? One way, I think, would be to find an organization that's established and is working in the context that you're interested in. I think providing money to that organization is one way to do it. It actually allows for the greatest flexibility. The other way, especially if you're in the healthcare environment, is that a lot of these organizations are accepting what's called gift in kind. They'll accept supplies. And oftentimes, like Project Hope, for example, is able to arrange the transport. If, if an organization like a healthcare system has several pallets of items that they want to donate, a reputable organization can figure out the transport and will take those from the facility all the way to the end user in Ukraine, which takes a lot of the logistical challenges out of it for the donating kind of organization. The government of Ukraine has relaxed the rules on um, expiry and what items would be useful there. So for example, in many countries, Prior customs rules would dictate that an item has to be a year from expirations before they will allow import. And basically all those rules have been taken away. So it's become really much easier, especially for pharmaceuticals, to get supplies in. The other items which we heard of in great need were ventilators and other orthopedic related items like X fixes and, and things of this nature. So 
I would also say that, you know, with every new crisis, we spend a lot of focus on that. But there's also a lot of chronic crises going on. We mentioned some of them, especially like Afghanistan or Yemen or Somalia. We only have so much attention, I think, as a global community. And so it's really challenging to remember that there's a lot of need in the world. Being able to contribute to Ukraine, as well as other crises, is really notable and, and much needed. I want to thank Pranav and others who are out there on the ground doing the hard work. You inspire me to get involved and try to find ways that I can help both locally and abroad. I'll put a link to Project Hope in the show notes for anyone interested in donating or if you want to learn more. Thank you to our department for supporting Pranav in this important work. And thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for smoothing out my bumpy recording. See you next time.